Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor Kate Blanchett. For over 25 years, Blanchett has been as vital as any performer we have. Some of my personal favorite performances of hers come in projects like Elizabeth, The Talented Mr. Ripley, The Gift, The Aviator, Babel, Carol, Manifesto, and Mrs. America. She was in two films in 2021, Don't Look Up, an apocalyptic satire directed by Anna McKay, and Nightmare Alley, which was nominated for four Oscars this past week, including Best Picture. Set in the late 30s, early 40s, It tells the story of Stanton Carlyle, played by Bradley Cooper, an ambitious carny turned renowned psychic, performing alongside his wife Molly, played by Rooney Mara. The clairvoyant couple begins to impress the wealthy elite of Buffalo. It's here, during a show, that Stanton meets his match in psychologist Dr. Lilith Ritter, who suspects he's not the omniscient medium he claims to be. Here's an early scene between the two of them from the film Nightmare Alley. Mr. Carlisle, come in. Slow day. Have you not heard? We're at war. I'm aware. How did you know it was me? What brings you here? You left me your card, didn't you? So, here we are. Oh, not me, I never drink. Microphones. That's right. Wire recorder. You recording this? No. My office is wired to record all analysis sessions. You got a smoother line, but you run a racket. Same as me. Is that what this is? That was a scene from the film Nightmare Alley, directed by the great Guillermo del Toro. It's currently available in theaters on Hulu and HBO Max. Blanchett, of course is excellent in the picture, perfectly cast as a femme fatale in Del Toro's haunting neo-noir. This tends to be the case for Blanchette. No matter the period or style of the film, she has a way of burrowing deep inside it. Her conviction is overwhelming, her presence staggering. I don't exactly know how she does what she does, and quite frankly, I don't think I want to. 
Back in the day, when interviewers used to ask John Lennon how he makes the music he makes, he'd always have this same line. He'd say, every time you try to put your finger on it, it slips away. I've always loved that. And so what you're about to hear is a different kind of conversation than you've probably ever heard with Kate Blanchett. We do talk about craft, but what we landed on was a larger discussion about identity, truth, imperfection, the necessity for risk, and the various inflection points of her life that have made her who she is, on screen and off. So, here is the one and only, Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, nice to meet you. Thanks, Sam. Nice to meet you. This is a very strange way to meet someone. You are in the UK. I'm in Los Angeles. You're recording this at nine o'clock at night. If you want to have a drink, I will join you. If you want me to have espresso with you, (laughs) we never tape these in the evening. So I'm willing to accommodate whatever you want to do. What time is it there? One o'clock. That could be at a time a time for an espresso martini. It's like partially <laughs> breakfast, heading into the evening. No, no, I'm on peppermint tea and mineral water, which is slightly boring, we say, as we, we both sip our... Teas? <laughs> medicinal drinks. They're completely medicinal and for the voice, so we'll, we'll keep it... Totally for the voice. It's all about the voice. Okay, good. Why don't we start with Nightmare Alley, which... I know historically, as you study scripts, you write down everything the character says about herself, as well as everything that other people in the script say about your character. You've said in the past to this approach, it gives you a three-dimensional sense of what they are doing. How did the character of Lilith reveal itself to you? Well, through the eyes of Guillermo del Toro. I mean, when you're dealing with someone like that who is has such a loving, passionate and brutal eye, which is a very rare combination. You know, I'm a theatre animal, so I have a very direct and visceral kind of connection to an audience. And you're slightly dislocated from that audience when you work in film. So who's looking down the barrel at you? It's a really important relationship, not only with the DP and the camera operator. It's obviously for Guillermo, because that's the reason why we're all there. So it started with him really. I mean, that text work, I think it's part of trying to get to the truth of the character, because we're all heroes of our own narrative, right? We're all narcissists. But what we say about ourselves, who we think we are in the world, is often very different from how we're perceived to be in that world. So somewhere, I think there's an intersection between how people perceive us, how we perceive ourselves, who we want to be perceived. It's the intersection of all those things that the character somewhere in that nebulous space, the character actually takes flight. How did you perceive the character? It's, you know, I'd always find that really, it's it's the thing that you're meant to know when you get to this other end of what's, quote unquote, publicizing the movie. I, my, my daughter's laughing. Um, sorry, she's asleep on the sofa over there. Go to sleep. Um, it's, it really is the bit that I dread because it's the bit where you're meant to tell people what the thing that you've all made is about. And in the end, I am so not interested in telling people what it's about. It's not why I got involved in it. My my engagement with a project, it's always about finding out, like asking questions, and you never solve it. The audience is the last part of that equation. Like they are the ones that give it, I mean, I don't want to sound too kind of wanky about it, but they give it the meaning, the ultimate meaning. It's like, well, how do you think? And, you know, every individual audience member will receive it slightly differently if it's a complex work like Nightmare Alley is. And then suddenly I'm meant to know who my character is. I mean, do you know who you are, Sam? I have no clue who I am. (laughs) I mean, it's not something I wake up in the morning and go, I am. Um, <laughs> I finally realized who I am. I mean, do you know? 
Can we answer those questions? We're just a series of kind of labyrinths and riddles and unsolved mysteries, aren't we? We absolutely are. And I'm going to make a promise to you. That's the last question I think you're not going to like on this show. (laughs) No, no, it wasn't that I didn't like it. I didn't know how to answer it. No, 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 because I agree. It's a question that is asked of people after they've made something and they're putting it out into the world. I think the more interesting question is that at the core of this film, you've said, is a story of a man who starts to believe his own lies. And I think we are absolutely living through a time where people are believing their own lies Mm. rather than investigating the truth. I mean, totally. I mean, Guillermo is known for making films about monsters and creatures. And in a way, this is an inverted kind of sense of of that investigation for him because it's it's the monster within, the internal monstrousness of being a human or trying to be human in the modern world, even though Nightmare Alley is set back in time, which in a way is a space where you can Trojan horse all of the concerns about that truth and fallacy that you were referring to, that, that all of us are, anyone who's half awake is alive to that conundrum about what do you believe, what do you listen to, what do you take in? There's too much noise to even know what is an essential truth. I mean, I, I, when I grew up, and I'm older than you are, scientists, people who had worked their entire career in the space of fact, and there are immutable facts on this planet, but somehow those immutable facts have moved into the space of being beliefs. And that is a really strange and elastic space that it's, it's doing our head in. And I think that that is the space in which Nightmare Alley operates, is that the fundamental moral truths that have guided us, forget religion, it's about the facts that guide our daily existence. They've somehow been called into question as being beliefs, and it's really confusing. This balancing act that's central to the film between deceit and honesty, deception and truth, I don't know, it also seems central to how you approach acting, I assume. And I think this for you dates back to 1978. I want to go to something. When you're nine years old, the middle of three kids growing up in Melbourne, for fun, your sister would dress you up in costumes, giving you a character to play. But then one day you take this passion out onto the streets and to the doorsteps of strangers' homes. Oh my God. Have I mentioned this before? Oh, shit. Totally. I would show up on people's doorsteps and I would pretend that, you know, I'd lost a dog. This would be our weekend thing, is that we would go and see how far we could push this. And then one day I got invited into these people's homes and I got asked to dinner and it was like five o'clock and I knew I was meant to be home. And in order to get in and to to compound the lie, I realized I had to be emotionally upset about the loss of the dog. So I had to start crying. And then they wanted to know my parents' number. My father had died. So it was just my mom. And I was thinking, oh my God, if she knows I'm here and she knows we haven't lost a dog. And I was weeping and and these people took me in and they they fed me. And at a certain point, we're all sitting around the table and I was so exhausted by the lie that I started to drop it and I became inconsistent. And they knew and I knew that they knew. It's a bit Russian here. It's a bit Cold War that we were all, that I was lying and they knew I was lying, but we agreed for the the sense of social convenience that we were all going to just say that this lie has existed, but you can leave the house now. And it was just one of those really complicated moments for a nine-year-old to think, I don't know about this lying caper. (laughs) (laughs) I felt so bad. And if I was Catholic, I would still be atoning for the guilt of that moment. But um, fortunately, I'm not. But there's something about it. There's something about that lie that compelled you to do it, even at age nine. There was something thrilling in that. I think it was pushing It was pushing a boundary. I think probably because I'd lost my dad, I was attuned to the notion of loss. And so I wanted to see if I'd lost a dog. I, I was a dare. Look, look, frankly, it started off as a dare. Someone would dare. It's, it's like Halloween. I mean, my dad was American. We were the only people in the suburb in Australia that even knew what Halloween was. People would just slam their doors. It's like, what's this Halloween thing? 
and there was no treat in my in my suburb. It was all trek, and 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 so I just I think it probably came out of the Halloween thing is that I would go around and start opening doors and saying this has happened or. I said to my history teacher, I fell down the stairs and I'd have my uniform on completely backwards. So everyone would know that it was just so ridiculous that I'd fallen down the stairs. And why did I suddenly have my shirt and my dress and my all my, my hair was backwards? I had pigtails coming out, you know, the front of my face. And it was seeing how much you could get away with before people would realize that you were being a buffoon. <laughs> you mentioned your father who passed away when you were 10. For context... You know, your father came from Texas and he met your mother when his Navy ship broke down in Melbourne. I think they bonded over a love of jazz. And when he passes, did something about his passing illuminate the preciousness of our time here? Did it escalate those desires to want to knock on a door and try anything to do something? You know, I mean, I have four kids and each of them are... So different. And I, I I, was not one of these girls who grew up thinking, oh, I want to have children. It just sort of happened. And I was lucky it happened with someone I loved. But the thing with kids, everyone will have a different perspective, of course. But from my experience and my experience of being a child myself is that they're really resilient. Now, one can take that for granted and assume that they have processed trauma or, you know, have moved on. I mean, you know, I, mean, I think it was Michelle Pfeiffer years ago said that she was going to put a dollar into the jar every time she screwed up with her kids to pay for their therapy. And, of course, they will have their issues. And, and there are many fuck-ups and missteps that I have made as a parent, as most parents will make. So, therefore, I don't think I thought about it at the time. It's not until you reach those landmarks of turning 18, 21, partnering, having kids, getting your first big job, you know, that those things where you think, you suddenly look back over your shoulder and you realise that person's not there watching you. But in the end, they're watching you from this space. And so the loss becomes a very different perspective, I think, on where you're at and what you've achieved. And the dialogue with that parent, even though that parent is absent, doesn't end. It just mutates into a different sort of relationship. It's like when you, you know, I remember in in art class, you would do this sense of negative drawing. You would draw the object and then you would invert it and you would draw the negative space around the object. And in a way, the loss of a parent is the negative space around the object, around the life. And that is a massive space. And so, of course, you know, my father died when he was 40. And now as an adult, I don't think about the loss of a parent so much. I I think about the tragedy of my mother at 39 losing a partner who was 40 and how tragic to die at the age of 40. I think about all of those losses. I don't think about my loss you know and so there's an incredible gift that that loss represents i mean that sounds incredibly narcissistic on one level but yeah it's just a dialogue is just a different dialogue and you find about your uh, out about your parent in retrospect you know through story through photographs and you know and my father was kept very much alive by you know through conversations about his childhood you know his history my parents' marriage, all of those things, which maybe I wouldn't have been privy to if he'd been alive. You said you only think about these changes when you're looking back at the landmarks of your life. You you can only sort of process them once something else has happened. And I want to go to what I think is a landmark in your life, which is in 1992, you graduate from Australia's National Institute of Dramatic Art. God, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? Two years before I was born. Okay, stop there. Yeah. Okay, you lost me. I was almost there, and then you said that. So do you want to do you want to zip? <laughs> okay, whatever. So yeah, what did I do? <laughs> so I graduated from drama school before you were born. All right. Yes. Yeah, so let's pick up there. <laughs> <laughs> just had to make sure you were listening <laughs> I was I'm totally with you I'm totally with you 
Yeah. So what happened then? Tell me. I've forgotten. I've got early onset dementia. So it's mm-hmm. really great that we're speaking this evening. <laughs> I can't even remember my name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what happens is that before you graduate, you start out at the University of Melbourne as an art history and economics major. You leave a couple years in, go backpacking penniless in Istanbul, then Cairo, then you come home to do this Institute of Dramatic Art. When you graduate in 92, it's important because later that year you would perform in David Mamet's Oleana at the Sydney Theatre Company. But I think to understand the importance of that performance, I'm curious about that job that you took out of drama school as a script reader for a casting agent and how that job informed how you understood acting. Well, that's an interesting question. I, yeah, I don't think anyone knew what to do with me. And, and look, to be fair, I don't think I knew what to do with myself. I honestly don't think I ever thought seriously that being an actor was a, a job that one could pursue beyond a wonderful hobby, even after going to drama school. And so, you know, there were a lot of people who worked straight out of drama school. I was not one of those people. And so there was a casting agent in Sydney who, uh, for some bizarre reason, believed in me. And she got me to read opposite other people. And so I spent the first 12 months out of drama school reading for people when they were auditioning. And it was a fascinating privilege, actually, to watch people at their most nervous, at their most exposed, at their most vulnerable, at their moment of greatest need as performers, and to see the minute they walked in the door, what would happen energetically between them and the director. And I was totally irrelevant and invisible in that process. And so as I was a real fly on the wall and I learned an incredible amount, not only on a banal level about auditioning, but just about human beings, just watching the interaction, the power dynamics that would happen in that room about the status and the giving over and the, the, the ebb and flow of it all. And it was really, really fascinating. And so I was then auditioning for a, a feature film at the end of that, that year. I wasn't sure that I was right for the role. I know that sounds really stupid and really arrogant when, of course, you know, I could barely pay my rent at that point. So any job, frankly, would have been a, a godsend. I just thought, I don't know that I, I'm right. And so I sat back, having watched people lose a job in a way when they came in wanting it too much. But I sincerely thought, I don't know if I'm right for this role. And, and of course, I got it, not because I was right, but maybe because I was ambivalent. It's that strange ambivalent space that I think we occupy a lot of the time. It's those moments between where we we identify that there's a series of choices I could make right now. Which one am I going to make? It's that liminal space that I think that a lot of really interesting acting decisions get made. You said of watching people audition. At some point I realized this is an act. It's not whether you can act or not. It's whether you can act comfortable and relaxed. Yeah, it's a really complicated thing. I think you you have to allow yourself to be seen. And some people have the gift of being able to be comfortable with that really early on. And I was not. And so I was really grateful in a way that I spent a lot of time in the theatre where I developed a sense of audience. I look at these people who are 16, 17, like Cooper Hoffman. I mean, amazing. I mean, it's just amazing the way he allows himself to be seen. You know, I could never have done that at his age. You weren't comfortable with that? Oh, God, no. I wouldn't have known even how to begin. You know, I still struggle with it. It's why I always have to think, oh, I've got to stop now. I've had my portrait painted a couple of times. And it's interesting because when you, you see, you know, you develop a relationship with the artist and they approach you and they paint me looking away from their gaze. And I think when that happens once, you go, oh, when it happens twice, when it happens three times, you think, why am I, why am I looking away? You know, and I think it's, it's, it's that thing about not wanting to be captured because, you know, I'm in life. Acting is part of it, but I'm actually engaged with the, 
I sound so wanky, but it's it's like the art of living. Sometimes that's being captured, but sometimes it's just, you know, going for a walk or encountering people at the, at the market or... I do think that being self-conscious, it's, it's the enemy of quote-unquote art. Then you're talking about something that's aware of itself. If you're trying to deal directly with an audience... You know, I mean, of course, sometimes there's a there's a nod or a wink in the direction of the camera, but in the end, you want something to be direct, and self consciousness gets in the way of that. I think that's my issue with social media. There's an understood filter that we have kind of now absorbed and ceased to see. I notice in looking at photographs of myself, I often do the same thing. I've turned away, or some of my faces obfuscated. And I've often thought, what on earth is that? Yeah, I think it's... Susan Sontag would would talk about non-photography. She talks about all of that language around photography. It's the same language around gun culture. You shoot, you point, you aim, you capture. We don't talk about it anymore, really, because photography is so much in, in the way we visually received information. And, of course, it's really super, super important and super valuable, and I'm not trying to diminish it, but we do have to be aware of it. There is a kind of a cost if you're trying to also, at times in your life, be invisible so you can be inside life, not skirting on the surface of it. In those early films, Oscar and Lucinda, Elizabeth, Talented Mr. Ripley, I don't sense any self-consciousness on screen. And there's one film directed by Sam Raimi called The Gift that I think has some kinship with Nightmare Alley. In The Gift, you play a fortune teller. And of course, in Guillermo del Toro's new film, the fortune teller role is integral to the fate of Bradley Cooper's character. And yet it seems you too had your course predicted upon visiting a retired psychic. Oh, have I talked about that? When I was doing The Gift, it was one of my favourite experiences. Sam Raimi is one of the... He's a genius. I mean, he invents shots. And so it was such a privilege to work with him. And it was all made in a wing and a prayer. We had no money at all. And I played a psychic whose husband had died and she was being haunted by this woman who had been killed. So it's kind of a murder mystery. I'd never been to a psychic And so I went to the ones in L.A. and they'd obviously just read the trades. And then when I got to Savannah, where we shot it, I met this woman who was a quote-unquote real estate agent. She said, look, I don't do this anymore because it's too dangerous. She used to, when obviously when the FBI can't solve certain crimes, they would often get psychics in to help them find bodies. And so she's seen and discovered a lot of really unpalatable things. And so I said to her, look, would you give me a reading? I've never had one before and your accent's amazing and, you know, I've got a memory like a sieve, so I'll record it. And the recording device wouldn't work around her. But of course, as soon as she left, the recording device worked. And she made all these predictions, which I only recorded because I was interested in the process. And then we were moving house about five or six years later. And so I listened to the recording and Everything she said happened. What did she say? She said I would have four children. I was like, are you crazy? And there would be two born in one place, one in another, and one would come to me in a really unusual way. So we have three biological kids, one adopted child, two born in England. I mean, it was all kind of crazy. And she said that I would play a writer who was ahead of her time, who had a foreign-sounding man at Guavan, Guevan, short hair, and she was killed for what she was writing. And I found myself on set three years later, covered in blood because I'd just been shot playing the Irish writer Veronica Guerin, who was killed for what she was writing about the drug lords in Ireland at the time. And she also said that I had two bodyguards, And I was like, are you bonkers? And because the case had been reopened, I was assigned a bodyguard because the guys who had got out of jail were visiting the set. Ireland is a very small country. And I was covered in blood, short hair, coming from the scene where I'd just been shot. And I turned behind me and there were two bodyguards following me. And it was just one of those moments where you go, hang on a minute, 
And then it was all came back to me. So it wasn't like I'd predicted it. I'd only done that stuff as research. So that was a very strange, strange moment. Her prediction came true. It did. And so I had this urge. It's like, oh, my God, I've got to go back and find her. And then you think, do I want to know or do I not want to know? So obviously I didn't. Yeah, (laughs) I didn't want to know. It's a little bit terrifying, isn't it? The prospect of going back. Well, it's humbling, but it's also what would it achieve? Because I encountered her in absolute innocence. I'd be going back with a need that, you know, that might pervert. You know, this is the whole thing that Guillermo's film deals with is that what's the truth? The thing I asked her, which is really interesting, I said, what's the hardest thing about having this gift? This gift of having this synapse open where you can you get a really strong feeling about something and sometimes you're right and sometimes you're not. And she said the hardest thing is saying it. And I, we find that in any relationship is that when you, when you perceive something about a loved one and you think, do I say it or do I not say it? You know, that often happens in families, doesn't it, where there's an understood truth that you think we know what this is but we're not going to articulate it. But you need to know what it is. Once you've uncovered the truth, you need to have a relationship to it in some form. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle to everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. 
See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. question about your family because you mentioned that film Veronica Guerin and while you were making it you have this quote you said that after Dashiell your first child was born I have nothing to give this project because I'm so filled up with this creature we've created but I've become a better actor because of it I think parenthood is knowing what cards you've got and then throwing them up in the air I've never heard that description before <laughs> I think when you have a profound life experience, and for some people that's having children, for some it's walking up a mountain or having a great creative experience, but it changes you. And so I think you have to ask yourself each time, you, have, you know, like there's a lot of things that you encounter where you go, oh, I wish I could do that. And you think, now's not the time, you know, because I'm doing this. And if I do that and that, I won't serve either of those things well. So you have to let those things go. In those moments, you have to confront your own mortality and think, well, I don't have anything to give that. But, you know, in that instance, he was very, very young when I did Veronica Guerin. And I was, you know, first child. I had no idea if I would even want to or could or what acting even meant. But maybe that was a good space to work in because if you think you know too much or, oops, I like how you're the first person to ever have to quiet their child while we're taping. There's so many time zones that one, you know, I'm Australian, so I'm dealing with Australia, which is in our morning here in the UK. And then there's our life here. And then LA wakes up. And then you've got this whole other life. And meanwhile, your children are on a regular UK cycle. And <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and by the way, I take no offense that the kids don't care about talk easy. I actually find this entirely endearing. No, they, they care deeply. They want to hear it. <laughs> but the problem is they can only hear me. They can't hear you. So they're only getting the boring end that they hear every day. Uh -huh. they're, not, they're not getting you, Sam, which is the exotic end of the day. I'm, I'm the exotic part? You are the exotic part of their day. Now I know you're a good actor. I wasn't sure before. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. They just get the orange headphones. You know, the mother they always get. But it's true. You have four children and you've said having children, it forces you to be economical, to choose your roles wisely and then shrug them off as soon as you're done. And since we don't have all the time in the world, I want to ask you about two films here. Where they land with you now and how you shrugged them off when you were done. To start, I think we should talk about I'm Not There. I had made a film in Morocco, and my son had an accident. It was the closest that I've ever come to a nervous breakdown, I think. I was so distressed. I said to my agent and dear friend, I said, I can't do this. I can't work. And she said, don't worry, we'll make it fine. It can all happen. So I... I came to that job kind of very overexposed, I think. But if you're going to be overexposed with anyone, it's with Todd. I've had the great fortune of working with him a couple of times and I would do it a couple of times more because apart from Guillermo, there's not a more loving environment in which one can work. And it's all about the investigation I had to lose a lot of weight to play Bob Dylan, so I became increasingly thin, you know, and I would get obsessed with with these, um, the outtakes from the Penny Baker documentary that his agent had given us, which was fascinating. And watching his connection to the media, I became really obsessed with, and it was a life raft. So it was this strange space that I entered the shoot of I'm Not There, that was a very kind of maternal space, but yet I was playing Bob Dylan. And so I had this total fangirl response to him, but yet I was a woman playing him. And um, a friend of mine who was doing hair and makeup said to me, you know what, I think it's great what you're doing. 
but you need to put a sock down your pants. I think that's what's missing. I went, what? And she said, trust me, just put a sock down your pants. I think it will change the way you move. And because I hadn't hadn't thought about him as being male or female, but putting this sock in my pants, it was like everything came alive for me. I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous and totally shallow, but it did change the way I moved. And it made that strange intersection between me as a female body, him as a kind of a male but androgynous entity, and the fact that I was a woman playing man, it just kind of all came together around that sock in the pants. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's like it should be a much more intellectual, you know, kind of connection. But I'd done all of that stuff. And that sometimes something as kind of obvious as that is the key. Mm -hmm. No, what do you think I did right before this podcast? You put a sock down your pants? (laughs) You have a sock down your pants. That's your business, and it's none of my business. <laughs> I'm going I'm to say on record, that is one of the dumbest jokes I've ever made on the podcast. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, that, well, look, that's, that's one of the most shallow observations I've ever made about any character. And look, it's, of course, it's always more complicated than that. But, but you know, sometimes the, the moments of pivot, that one makes with a project, with an idea, whatever it is that one's working on, is really physical or simple or it's like just open that door and you go, oh, okay. And it's only because you've done all the other stuff that that door becomes available to you. By the way, I said the joke mainly because I knew you would enjoy it, um, even though it's profoundly dumb. Yes. I did. (laughs) I did. It's not (laughs) profoundly dumb. One of the things you said about Dylan, you said, I think the way to be ultimately liberated and free as an artist, which Dylan absolutely inhabits, is to constantly escape the physical definition. If you look at his various incarnations, I mean, it's quite schizophrenic. And I was thinking about these various incarnations of your career. They almost seem to culminate in the film Manifesto. Oh, you saw that. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, um, Julian Roosevelt, he, we were talking about working together and, and he came up with this idea of, of doing a piece around artists' manifestos and, you know, the, the kind of the assertion of individuality and the different way they express themselves and perhaps a good way of, of fully representing that would be to find both meaningful and banal settings in which to express these manifestos, sometimes as in a monologue, sometimes as text. And what if we found various manifestos and assigned a a character, but not in the sense of a character as one understands it, narrative, you know, an archetype. And so I found that really, really fascinating. It was like stand-up comedy, is there was no time for thought. Obviously, there was no money for the project at all. And so we we had to think on our feet. And literally the night before, it's like, okay, what if I talk like that? And all right, well, now I'm going to talk like this. And, and you know, it was literally trying to find something that would be appropriate the day of or the day before. It made me think about how random and immediate our sense of identity is and how malleable our sense of identity is and how surface our sense of identity is. And the amazing thing about reading all of these manifestos is artist manifestos is that they're they're massive assertions about the separation of one's artistic identity from the previous incarnation of all these people's artistic identity. But yet when you hear them energetically, when you hear them together, because there was a point when all the manifestos were heard together sort of in a tone poem, they all sound the same. We all think about how unique and individual and special we are, but it was a really profound moment for me, and maybe an audience wouldn't receive it in the same way, but I felt just how connected all of these departures were. I found that there was a strange sort of comforting moment in that dissonance. To get into all of those parts, you just said something I loved, which is that there was no time for thought. There's something very 
Eastern philosophy in that. <laughs> it was self-preservation, Sam. It's what it was. It was like, we got to do this. But also, you know, the, the most wonderful times I've had with the Bob Dylan project you were mentioning, with Manifesto, you think, no one's going to see this. And it gets a bit harder, you know, when you're dealing with a Marvel movie to say, no one's going to see this. But you have to claim that space. In a way, you're saying it doesn't matter if people see this. And that doesn't mean that you have a disregard for the audience, because in the end, that's absolutely why you're doing it. Not that you want audience's approval, but you want the chance to connect with someone for them to like it or dislike it. And sometimes it's those gray areas that, you know, between thumbs up, thumbs down, that most of the films, most of the endeavors sit because they're not going to ever be thumbs up, thumbs down. By the way, I mentioned this Eastern philosophy about having no time to think because you've often talked about how your work is rooted in the Eastern philosophy of imperfection, that something can only truly be perfect only if there's imperfection in it. That's my justification for <laughs> being who I am. That's what I said to my children. I said, look, there's no such thing as a perfect parent <laughs> as I'm failing them monumentally. It's the imperfections that make you who you are. I say to my children, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, something is only beautiful. It's like, it's like this idea of homogenous beauty, you know, is that we're all striving to get rid of all the imperfect parts of ourselves. But when you remove them, you know, you remove that individuality, you remove that. I mean, who are we without all of that history? You know, there's an amazing moment where as one ages is that there's a, an asymmetry that happens when, when we're in the womb and that we're all slightly asymmetrical. And as we age, our face, our bodies, you know, become, and probably our personalities, therefore, become increasingly asymmetrical. As that becomes evident, we try and revert to a sense of symmetry. But then what you're trying to do is you're trying to reverse the aging process in a really profound way that makes us who we are. And it took me a while to receive it as a compliment that someone said to me is that I've got an actor's face, which probably meant that I wasn't particularly attractive. But, you know, but that sense is that you have a quote-unquote good side of your face and a not-so-good side of your face. But if you allow that asymmetry to exist, you've got so many more doors to play so many more people because if you start to remove that asymmetry... I don't know. I mean, do you remove some of the complexity? Of course. And I'm reluctant to compliment you because I don't think you do so well with compliments. Who does? <laughs> but do you do well with compliments? What do you do with compliments? Well, you haven't tried. You've got great hair, Sam. <laughs> Lovely eyebrows. Thank you. I have two questions. In talking about aging as a performer, in 2019 you sat with Julia Roberts for an interview. You said, as you get older, acting just gets more and more humiliating. <laughs> when I was young... <laughs> was, that, was, that, was that an okay line reading? It's only worse. It's only worse since... When was that? 2019. It's even more humiliating. Yeah, yeah. Here we are in 2022. <laughs> 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 yep. You know what? I, I can't even say a nice thing about you because you won't even hear it. So I, I'm not even going <laughs> to... Okay. No, no. Was that nice? Okay, let's go. You're talking about humiliation. I'm, I'm listening. Well, okay. So <laughs> when I was younger, I would wonder why the older actors I admired kept talking about quitting. Now I realize it's because they want to maintain a connection to the last shreds of their sanity. It's the King Lear end of the spectrum of what we do, right? So I'm on the proverbial couch thinking, do I want to go that direction or do I actually want to live a life? And I think about that now as we as we sit. Where are you on that spectrum? I still, I mean, that was only 2019. I still haven't worked out the answer. But having lost a parent at such a young age, I realized how short life was. 
and how many lives I wanted to lead. And that the privilege I've had as being an actor is that I've empathetically been able to enter not only time zones, but actually to a lot of different psyches. And, and so therefore I've, I've got to experience the point of view, the outlooks and the experiences of people beyond my own. And so the literalism that I see creeping into that one can only play things inside one's experience, I find really sad. I find it really limiting. You do get to a point where you think, well, do I have anything more to offer? You do have to stop periodically and say, I actually need to go actually go back into the world and have some experiences that are not research for the next role, but are simply just on your art, you know, you're in the world to explore, to see what the questions are. And unless you have that space as an artist, which means stepping off the treadmill of one's so-called career trajectory and, you know, when you get representation and there's a certain career path that one is meant to be on, you know, you can feel like, oh, God, what have I, mm, it's that fear of not getting that or the bravest thing you can do is step sideways. And so I'm constantly wanting to step sideways. Do you think one of the reasons you have trouble stepping sideways is because of that Martha Graham philosophy that I know you subscribe to. She said, no artist is pleased. There is only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. Yeah, you can have that feeling whether you're a quote unquote artist or not. I think that's part of being human. I think it's part of being alive. And that is far more important to me than being an actor. Any panic I feel is when I feel that there's too much, you know, and there's a, the whole thing that has developed with streaming, algorithms that need to be fed, is that somehow we are content providers and that makes me want to throw up. The last thing I want to do is to be someone who is filling space that has been created. Don't say something unless you have something to say. And if you haven't got something to say, give that to someone else. I think you've had many things to say on this show. And, I, and since the beginning, you've had this interaction with your daughter trying to uh, get her to she's fall asleep. asleep. She's actually asleep. She's actually she's asleep, asleep You, Sam, thank you. Thank you. You have sent her to sleep. You know, you know, don't say that too loud. She's sound asleep. Thank God. So if can I speak to you tomorrow night? <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, this is clearly working. You know what? I think this has been a riveting conversation. <laughs> I want to put something on record before we leave. You said earlier your kids may listen to this, although they can only hear your end of it. After the last two years, after this whirlwind of a year you've had with these two films, with four kids at 52, I don't know, what do you want? them to know about who you are today, about what matters to you right now? Gosh, you know, it's a hard thing to say with the spread of children between 20 and 7, because their interest in you as a parent, what they want from you as an individual and as a parent figure is so very, very different. You know, my, my seven-year-old daughter hates it when I do voices, when I read. It's like, but that's what I do. Don't you want me to give my Christmas pig? You know, and so, yeah, so she hates that. But in the end, it's the really simple things. When you're living with people day to day, it's the simple thing. It's like, dude, recycle. There's a recycling bin. You know what? If you recycle and separate our garbage, that on a banal domestic level, is where I'm at because it's about mindfulness. Forget the yoga, forget the meditation, just have a sense that you take the time to know how much waste you're producing and how conscious you are of that. So that is, I suppose, first base and we're trying to get there. 
But that is probably not the answer you were looking for. You were wanting to know what they thought of me as a... They couldn't be... Can I tell you? They could not be less interested in what I do for a living. <laughs> you know, because they're individuals and, you know, they don't want to be... They don't want to be in the world in relation to me. No, no, I want to assure you something, which is that I want no answer that's not truthful to you. That's I, I don't presume to want anything like that. My last thing, since we have to go, that Graham quote about divine dissatisfaction. Are you comfortable with being dissatisfied in that way for the rest of your career? I think it's part of the job description. You know, that was a big thing about Nightmare Alley, about the monstrous moment when we feel satisfied with ourselves and we believe our own lies. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't reach a milestone and go, I did that, which is very important to, I think, American culture. I achieved that. I did that. I overcame that obstacle. But it's very different when you start to say, I am that. Solidity, I think, is a is a dangerous place for the creative mind to exist. It's about flow. It's about change. It's about challenge. And that's an, often a very uncomfortable place to be. And I suppose I'm just getting more and more used to being that uncomfortable, you know, and that's okay. Well, I have to say, as someone who's been watching your work my entire life. I apologize. Thank you. I've, I've been waiting for you to, honestly, you know, <laughs> but I know you're not going to take this well. I just want to say thank you for embracing that discomfort and, and the imperfections of the people you've played. They have made all of us who've watched, I think, a little more attuned to their own imperfection and in turn, our own humanity. Well, that's a very big compliment. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Kate Blanchett, lovely to meet you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Thank you. So long. That's our show. I want to give a special thanks this week to Graham Morphy, Dominic Buccieri, Searchlight Pictures, and of course, Kate Blanchett. If you'd like to learn more about Kate and her work, be sure to visit our website at talkeasypond.com. Once you're there, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes with actors including Laura Dern, Matthew McConaughey, Uzo Aduba, Holland Taylor, Tessa Thompson, Tracy Letts, Alana Hyam, and Willem Dafoe. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support the show, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or just click the five stars on Spotify. If you don't want to do either of those things, just sharing the show with a friend, family member, anyone that you think may be interested in the kinds of conversations we have here. You can also purchase one of our Talk Easy mugs. They come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Leibowitz at talkeasypod.com shop. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here for a bonus episode on Wednesday when I sit down with writer Glory Adam. Until then, stay safe and so long.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.